Mince pies, asking the tough questions so you don't have to. <laughs> high resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. What are the best arcade games ever? Relive the BBC Computer Literacy Program. Dialing up modem memories. And you've got 2,706 copies of what? All this and more on This Week in Retro. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. Neil, before we start today, I wanted to make our listeners aware of a new charity release for the ZX Spectrum. It's up for pre-order, yeah. Uh, If you're a fan of single-screen platformers like Bubble Bobble, Rainbow Islands, uh, you should check out this new release from Happy Coding ZX. Oh, I'm sorry, ZX. Boy, I just committed (laughs) the cardinal sin, eh? Uh, This thing is called Snowed Under. And uh, let me give you a little bit of the backstory, Neil, while hopefully uh, Duncan can run some gameplay footage over the top. So, okay. Picture in your mind, Neil. It's November 30th, and young Tim has made a terrible mistake tricked into opening a window on his advent calendar a day early by santa's evil brother krampus i always love a game with krampus in it Uh, he triggers an extra dimensional portal and is pulled inside he now finds himself trapped in a christmas nightmare so like i mentioned at the top neil this is a charity release with 100 percent of the proceeds going to benefit crisis a uk-based charity whose mission it is to end homelessness so if you'd like to donate and get yourself a festive specky game to play this holiday season, just click the link in the show notes. That's by Chronosoft. Um, they've done some nice games over recent years, so should be a good quality. I assume that's a physical boxed uh, little cassette game, is it? Comes both ways. You can uh, purchase just the you know the tap file on its own, or you can get a boxed uh, uh, tape, uh, and uh, which also comes with the uh, the emulator file. Either way you want to go, and all Very the proceeds nice. right to charity. All, all to crisis. Brilliant. That's a, a noble cause. I'm going to go and buy one straight after this show. Um, let's not dive straight into the first story, John. You know, I'm starting to enjoy this sort of preamble bit that's naturally sure. evolved to the show. Um, and we were just having a chat before we hit record, and you just dropped a bombshell on me, which was you've only just discovered mince pies. That's right. That's right. Expand. Uh, well, the, <laughs> my my first experience with mince pies, both of these uh, experiences come directly from Amigos listeners, and unsurprisingly, um, the first time I went to Amiga Ireland, I was greeted by the one and only Pixels at Dawn with a tray full of homemade mince pies. Mm. I was like, these are pretty good. And then I kind of forgot about mince pies for a while. And then they were back with a vengeance. Uh, we got a care package, a Christmas care package from the one and only Chris Folds. Uh, Chris Folds <laughs> sent me uh, and Aaron uh, uh, another tray full of mince pies. And boy, this is kind of a thing in the UK, right? People enjoy their mince pies around holiday time. It's the snack of Christmas. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm just, I, I had no idea that it wasn't a thing over there. I mean, I'd, I'd never even stopped to think about it. Oh, mince pies and a, a thing in America. Why would I ever stop to think about that? Um, <laughs> clearly you know, they're not. It, it's funny because we, we tend to think about mince pies and mince meat. And then we think, well, what is inside these mince pies? Is this some sort of, you know, meat? And is it good when it's been shipped <laughs> to us from the UK? So there were lots of questions swirling around. But apparently mince meat these days has nothing to do with meat at all. It's 
just some chopped up different kinds of fruits, right? Fruits and, and booze and, and goodness. Yeah. yeah. I love it. What, what's the official snack of Christmas then? Or unofficial snack of Christmas? I, I guess oh, it's I, I would say, yeah. Eggnog, fruitcake. Do you have fruitcake over there? Oh, yeah. Fruitcake. Mm-hmm. Now, do you take your fruitcake with a slice of cheddar cheese? No. That sounds <laughs> that sounds horrible. <laughs> that's the way. Assuming your fruitcake is the same as our fruitcake. Right. I'm sure we, it we're is. gonna need a whole nother episode on this. <laughs> <laughs> I think we need a new community question of the week. I <laughs> <laughs> um, just one other one other little thing for our preamble before we go in. Um I've literally just got in, opened the post, and um, found this book waiting for me, sent by Chris Abbott. And I think it's come up in conversation before on the show. It's The Little Book of Sound Chips, Volume 1. Ooh. And it's just a lovely little book full of um, arcade games and, and um, home computers and consoles. And it just tells you the sound chip that they've got and the thing that that game brought to the table, the new thing, the new sound that had never been heard before or technique. And every single one of them has a little QR code. So it's a really interactive book. You can just sort of zap it and go and watch a video or listen to the sounds of the what thing. A what a great idea. That's cool fantastic. Yeah. So, that's a thing from Fusion Retro Books. Thank you for sending that in, Chris. Um, should, we, should we start the show, John? Yeah, <laughs> let's start the show. Let's start the okay. show. So we'll start our first story off today, John, with a nice big list. It was submitted to the subreddit by Paul, a.k.a. Hermsky. Hello, Paul. I hope you're doing well. And uh, it is probably the best 110 arcade games ever. That's the title of it. Published over on BoardPanda.com. I love this story already. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, well, I was thinking about this this morning on my drive-in. I heard, I don't know if it was in Discord or on Twitter the other day, someone overheard a conversation where a young person was asking, a slightly older but still young person, what's an arcade game? And their reply was, oh, it's like a 500-pound video game that you used to find in a taxi rank. And that's their (laughs) definition of an arcade game. And it just struck me. I know we're not getting new arcade games. I know arcades are dead. You know, they've been dead for years. But now even the memory of them, you know, is sliding. It's going to die with our generation. We're the last generation that got to experience it with the with the cigarette smoke and the sticky carpets. Arcades the the way they were meant to be is what you're trying to say. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, it just saddened me a little bit. But um, maybe this article will perk us up a little bit. Um, you know, given, given that the only arcade, new arcades that we now see are oversized mobile apps like like Flappy Bird in a great big cabinet, mm-hmm. it's a list that shouldn't really shift. We should be able to choose a definitive list now looking back. The, the target's no longer moving. So get your thinking hats on, listeners. What would be in your, let's say, your top three? Get thinking before we reveal what this list has to say, because I'd really like to hear your thoughts on that. And the article reads, although there probably aren't many of us who got to play these games in their original form, a coin or token-operated cabinet, we can all appreciate their legacy. So I think that tells us something about the demographic of BoardPanda.com. Yes. <laughs> and, and it goes on to say, we've rounded up the most successful, influential, and truly iconic arcade video games. So they've already betrayed they've already betrayed the title because if something is the best it doesn't necessarily mean it was successful or influential. So This is true. This is true. Um so looking down the list we've got everything in here, you know, 110 games is a great big list. So we've got everything from Time Crisis to Toki to Bomb Jack, Cadillacs and Dinosaurs is in there which is a game 
that I'd not really explored until I played it more recently with uh, Dave, Dave Velociraptor. I know he's a listener. Apropos. Hello, Dave, if you're yeah. listening. <laughs> when, he, when he came to visit recently, we played that. That's at position 83 there. No, it's not at position 83. There's something odd at position 83. <laughs> okay, get this, John. Position number 83, Doom. Did you spot that in the list? Now, maybe I'm crazy, Neil, but I didn't think that Doom <laughs> made its way to the arcades. <laughs> yeah, I was pretty sure that there was never a Doom arcade. So I did look into it, and it turns out there was a fake Doom 2 arcade in a film. Um, I think I'm saying this right, Gross Point Blank. Oh, that's a great film. film. Yeah, John Cusack I've not movie. seen it. Okay, so apparently um, there was a fake Doom 2 arcade game in there, but there was never actually really a Doom arcade. Mm. So the list kind of loses a bit of credibility as early as position 83 here, I'm afraid, but we'll push on, we'll push on. Um, Other games in here are Track and Field, that's in the mid-60s. There's Robotron, that's at number 59. Dragon's Lair at number 32, John, what's that all about? I mean, (laughs) I think it was in the top five highest earning video games of all time 1983's dragon slayer mm-hmm. uh, um yeah, yeah street fighter 2 number seven i can't really argue with that and then we get into the top five and um yeah just t- talk us through the top five john how do you see it do you agree with it what do you make of it so let, let's look at the games here. Okay, so you've got Pac-Man, you've got Donkey Kong, Space Invaders, Galaga, and Miss Pac-Man. Um, this article, there's there's lots of weird things about this article. There's the, One of the weird things is that they've used images from arcade ports <laughs> instead of the actual, um, you know, flyer or a picture of the arcade cabinet. Uh, for some of the games, for example, on Space Invaders, there's a big picture of the Atari 2600 version of Space Invaders uh, instead of the, you know, a picture of the arcade machine. But there, there's also the question of whether, you know, of course, this is the list of the best games or the most influential games. Uh, because Space Invaders at number three is definitely an influential game. I would definitely put it in the top three for most influential games games of all time but let's not kid ourselves neil in the world of space shooters there are much better games than the original space invaders out there but uh for me my personal top five would be almost completely different um miss pac-man and galaga they would both be on there uh to me those are immortal classics and they're all-time greats they're still fun to play right now uh but i would put uh universal's uh do run run on there which is the third game in the mr do series uh it's a game that is absent from the list completely Uh, i'd move mappy up from number 31 to number four Uh, mappy's great and i'd round out the list with a newer game uh neo turf masters which i believe to Mm. be the greatest arcade golf game of all time (laughs) <laughs> did you even see that one in the list neo turf no, masters I, not I on there in there yeah no so that's an interesting omission um so yeah just to go over that top five again it was at five miss pac-man four was gallagher three was space invaders two was pac-man and one was donkey kong and it said at the start of the article itself it is both successful and most influential that they're picking from so yeah it, it's it's tricky um I can't argue that all of those aren't classics. They absolutely are. But if you're putting Pac-Man higher than Miss Pac-Man, um, then that must be influenced because Miss Pac-Man, I think most people agree, is the better, more developed game that came after Pac-Man. And yet it's lower at number five. So that doesn't make right. much sense to me. Um, why would you have them both in there if it was just about influence? Because Pac-Man would be the influential one. I don't know. It makes no sense. Anyway, I'm just going to put it out there, John, and say that the article itself 
it might be a bit of a lazy cut and paste job. What? <laughs> but, I mean, I would never I'm enjoying believe the conversation. From, not from boardpanda.com, Neil. Say it ain't so. <laughs> but let's continue anyway. <laughs> um, so it's pretty clear to me that at some point the author just they just started listing games because yeah. <laughs> the commentary just completely stops after the top 30 and then it's just like here's some images so um there's there's some real heavy hitters from the golden era i mean almost all the famous games from say you know 1978 through 1983 mm -hmm. or 1984 are listed on this list it's hard to argue with any of them because they are um you know they're from the golden era of arcade games but uh if we're going with most in influential uh, i in the top five i'd take out miss pac-man and i'd replace him with pong how can pong not be on the top five most influential arcade games um, it was the ship that launched a thousand cabinets uh, pong does make an appearance on the list but it's way back at number 31 which is way too low in my opinion um you know this is it's definitely this is definitely a list of the most influential games of all time but i, I think the the author perhaps could have done some more research into you know the games that actually were influential where's computer space for example you know why isn't that exactly that could that, that yeah. you could make it you could make a case for putting that in the top five too yeah that's going to be one of the most influential of all time absolutely um and then i, I just say it again doom i mean you've you've uh, talked about your top five there and games that you would choose including neo turf masters for me um I think I'm just going to, I just decided to pull the games that are most played on my MAME setup. Oh, so th there's that's no, a great way to look There's at no it. historical justification for these other than that I love playing them. So don't beat me over the head with these choices. It's just the ones that I reach for first and most often. So in no particular order, I would definitely have OutRun in there. OutRun made driving games cool. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also got great replay value, which is great for playing at home. So not just because you can take multiple routes, but because you can as a normal human being with normal reaction times, you can complete it on a single credit. It's not a, you know, a heroic effort to make that happen. You've got to practice, especially if you're doing it on anything other than the easy dip switch setting, but you can do it. And then you can go back and try and beat your time or try a different route. So it's a really nice replayable game, I think. Uh, Robotron, I always talk about Robotron. I love it. It's the most intense arcade that you can experience, I think. So that's got to be in there. Track and field. I play that a lot. Um, despite all of the track and field like games that came after it, there's so many games, you know, button bashing games to choose from, but I always go back to that one. Um, and I love playing it, especially at expos because quite often I haven't been to an expo for a couple of years now because of circumstances with the world. But when I used to go, people would come and chat to me and they'd often like to challenge me to a game if there were arcades there at some of the bigger expos. And track and field was the one I always like to take them on at. You know, you don't need to explain it. Everyone understands athletics. Everyone can bash buttons. They normally beat me at the 100 meters, which is the first event. And then I can claw it back over the rest of the event. So I really <laughs> like that, you know. <laughs> um, just a nice one to have a conversation over. You take it. Sometimes you take it in turns. Sometimes you go head to head. I just love it. Um there's a slightly lesser known game on my most played list, which is called The Outfoxies, which I might have mentioned on the show before. This is a Namco game, and it's the origins of Smash Bros. It's it's a 2D one-on-one -on -one fighter with loads of scaling going on where, you know, the further apart you get, the more it scales out, and then it zooms mm. in as you get closer yeah. together because the, it's Very quite Smash a bigger, Brothers like, yeah. Yeah, quite a big arena that you're fighting in, and you can, you can pick up anything and, and beat each other over the head with it. So 
really nice one-on-one fighter good single player but even better with a with a friend to play with and then finally one which i've been playing a lot lately and i haven't really touched since i was a kid until it came up in conversation recently because there's a new amiga uh, version of this a new amiga port being made and that's kung fu master uh so i've been playing an awful lot of that it's it's frustrating but it's frustrating in a way that brings you back to play more so really enjoying that and just uh, just outside just, just been pushed down to number six um by kung fu master lately is marble madness another very frustrating game but one that keeps me coming back so really like that so no justification for those choices they're just my most played and i would have liked to have seen all of those higher those that were in the 110 list higher up the list but i haven't really touched on apart from robotron i haven't mm, and track and field and mm, and outrun <laughs> i was gonna say i haven't really touched on that golden era uh, you, you know those <laughs> except for three of the time and, and kung fu master i think uh squeezes in there too yeah uh, is, is a but we're not era, really right? touching on those early nintendo or, or the williams games other than robotron no. Yeah, um, and I think that probably is a reflection a little bit on my age as well and the games mm-hmm. that I liked playing or wanted to play when I was younger. So there we go. That's my list. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts out there. Let us know. Find this story, which is on our subreddit, submitted by Paul, a.k.a. Hermsky, and leave a comment with your top games. I'd love to hear why you chose them and uh, what those games are. Neil, our next story this week is all about something near and dear to the hearts of so many of our listeners, the Computer Literacy Project. Uh, Now, how much of your love of computers can you ascribe to the BBC's initiative to get the latest technology in front of the eyes of Britain's schoolchildren in the 1980s? Well, (laughs) I really badly timed eating that mince pie then. Sorry. (laughs) But it's finished now. There'll be no more mince pie eating. Um, <laughs> we have to now remember... you move on to the Greggs. <laughs> now the sausage rolls. Um, I have to remember it wasn't just the BBC. It was the government. And that's important to mention because it's quite refreshing to think about government perhaps thinking about the longer term, um, the impact of computers on society and preparing society for their long-term impact on the workforce and not just the next election cycle to do something quick and popular to, to be re-elected. So I think they should be really applauded for that. Um, and thinking about the BBC computer in particular, the BBC, which turned 40 last week, um, it didn't make me love computers in so much that I um, that I saw and had to have a BBC micro. It didn't make me lust after that computer in particular, but what it did do was it made computers normal and intuitive to me, as intuitive as mobile phones and tablets are to kids today because they were in every single classroom. We were surrounded by them. We were immersed in an environment where this computer was there and computers were normal. And that's how kids are today with tablets, you know. I just had my niece and nephew over at the weekend to uh, see the cave for the first time. They are 10 and 12 or 9 mm-hmm. and 12, I think. And uh, it was quite funny because we've got a lot of machines set up here with SD cards to make loading nice and quick and easy. But on the ZX81 in particular, I've got um, a cassette deck so that people can actually sit and see what it was like and how long it took to load a a game back in 1981. And Annabelle walked up to it and I said, okay, we're going to load a game from this. Here's the tape deck. What do I do, Uncle Neil? Um, Okay, so first of all, you've got to press rewind to make sure the tapes are around. 
And on this big tape deck, instead of pressing the button to rewind it, she kept trying to press the word R-E, you know, R-E-W, rewind, on the top because she mm. thought it was a touchscreen. <laughs> she right, didn't know right. that there was this great big, <laughs> you know, spring-loaded tactile button to press. And um, that's, per- that, that's you know, perfectly acceptable. Why why the hell would she know how to use a cassette deck? Yeah. But then why, why would we as kids know how to use a computer unless we were completely surrounded by them? You know, a keyboard was a big, scary thing with lots of numbers and letters on, but it wasn't to me because from as far back as I can remember, it was there. Uh, and that was the beauty of the BBC Micro. And, you know, it was the normalization of tech. I think that's how I describe it. And that's what led to my longer term love of computers. So the BBC was a big part of it, but it wasn't about the BBC, John. Right, right. I've always thought it was such a unique time in history. I mean, on the one hand, you have the union busting Maggie Thatcher trying to you know, rein in England's malaise of being known as the sick man of Europe for much of the 70s. And on the other hand, you have the government pouring a fortune into the technology industry in an attempt to achieve parity with Japan and the United States. So, uh, you know, you've got your the British micros, the Speccy, the CPC, you've got the development of the ARM chip, uh, which arguably the most important microprocessor of the last decade coming out of Acorn. Um, Neil, do you think it would be fair to say that for at least a brief time in the early to mid 80s, Britain was the Silicon Valley of Europe? Hmm, interesting. Um, And you mentioned America and Japan there. And part of coming up with the computer literacy project did involve uh, government suits traveling to America and traveling to Japan before Mm -hmm. making decisions on how to go forward with this project. So they were certainly looking to those countries. Um, Was England or Britain, Silicon Valley, you had lots of MSXs coming out of Holland in the 80s. You had the French doing amazing things with the Minitel, and they had their Thompson range of computers, which you might compare to the Apple II or the BBC Micro, and there were lots of others. So I wouldn't want to say that Britain was the only country in Europe doing great things with computers. But aside from the hardware, the computer literacy project itself was certainly very, very forward thinking uh, and very well implemented as well. Uh, And no doubt the success of it encouraged a lot of the many 8-bit micros that came out of Britain to be produced. You know, all of those, some successful, some not successful, um, obscure machines that we saw come out of Britain through the 80s. Mm-hmm. Well, if you were one of the thousands of school children whose life was impacted by the BBC's computer literacy project, I have some good news, which is brought to us by subreddit user Remington Noiseless. Uh, the entire archive spanning from 1979 to 1983 has been made available online through a site at bbcrewind.co.uk. Uh, It contains, among other things, hundreds of programs and thousands of clips from TV series, including Micro Live, as well as other classic computing programs. Uh, It also allows you to run the computer programs themselves right in your browser. There's something like 150 BBC Micro programs that were developed just to accompany the TV programs, so you can really experience the whole thing as it was presented 40 years ago. Neil, does that sound like a fun exercise and nostalgia? for you oh absolutely absolutely and uh it's interesting that you mention it spans from 1979 because the bbc microcomputer that complemented it didn't come out until you know 40 years ago december 1981 mm-hmm. so the conversation the national conversation was already being had as far back as 1979 through these tv shows 
before they got onto the part of here's a computer that you might want to buy and here are you know complementing shows to go with that computer so it's very interesting and um i do love look, looking back at these shows uh, you know i definitely recommend it i trawled through a lot of these programs when i covered the bbc micro um year and a half ago on the channel and it was a real joy to go over highlights from them i, I would highly recommend you hunt them down and maybe um duncan will include some links to these clips um in bbc micro live which you mentioned back in 1983 they were demonstrating a modem dialing into a bulletin board system and this was aired live it was bbc micro live and as they did it some hackers took over the screen and they, they posted this little poem it wasn't rude or anything you know it was very gentlemanly <laughs> they posted this poem about hacking uh, it totally derailed the live demonstration and i think it was the first ever live televised computer hack it, wow i'm know, gonna have to it, check that out that's unbelievable. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of fun to watch <laughs> and then there's another um 1985 episode where we get to see them try out the Amiga 1000 for the very first time. And we all know the Amiga 1000's brilliant and it was an amazing computer ahead of its time, but they have to sit and explain what a GUI is, what Windows are. In fact, they probably called it a WIMP back then, um, mm -hmm. not a GUI. Uh, what the mouse was, uh, because these things were still so unfamiliar to many, they had to be explained as part of the demonstration. So it just sort of takes you back um to what the expectations of a computer were back then and it, it gets you excited about a future that's already here watching the watching right. these that's a great way to presented. put it yeah i really i, I it, think so. that i i think that that is one of the main attractions for me for going back and watching programs like this is it does it whenever you see people present things like the Amiga for the first time, it makes you remember how revolutionary it was. And then you turn around and, oh, I've got one of these right behind me. I'm going to fire it up and use it. So it's very cool. Um, to me, you know, this is a glimpse inside something that I don't think has ever been attempted before or since, frankly, uh, a serious nationwide effort from a government to bring an entire country up to date with technology. Uh, the only thing I can remotely compare it to is something like Stalinist Russia, where in the span of a generation, they went from the plow to outer space. But of course, there were there were some negatives. There was the totalitarian regime. There was the whole mass starvation thing. So probably not the best comparison to the computer yeah. literacy project. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, would, I wouldn't like to compare the highlight of my childhood with communism. <laughs> but, um, you know, it was certainly a great example of a country simply doing the right thing by its citizens. And it, it wasn't the first example either a couple of decades before the computer literacy project there was a straightforward literacy project which was designed to help drag adults up to um you know a much better reading and writing and literacy um level and uh, you don't have to label that kind of scheme as socialism or, or compare it to communism i know you, you did that chokingly but a lot of people would look at that and go well that's that's socialist you need to let the capitalist market work these things out for themselves but when you look at it, you mentioned ARM earlier. We had a generation of coders and game studios like Rockstar that came out of that generation, Codemasters, things like that. There are loads of examples of a return on that investment. So I'd love to see lots more longer term thinking from our political overlords that um, yeah. aren't necessarily just a cost. They do come with a return one done right. Sure, sure. It's, it's, you know, this is definitely a unique look at a particular time and place in computing history and the interactive elements alone, the programs that you can run for the Beeb in your browser, make this something for anyone interested in retro tech to check out. John, this next story is 
posted by Retroset on the subreddit, and it's not really a new story, but a really beautiful video of a modem being demonstrated. Can you imagine a beautiful modem? Well, this thing is. It's from <laughs> 1964. It's a wood grain box with a leather strap on top of it. Um, you can see the the jointing, the carpentry that's gone into this thing. It's amazing. And it's paired up with an old Zenith laptop, and they're using it to dial up and use a terminal program to browse Reddit. Um, purely in text, of course, in that terminal emulator. I hope they went to our subreddit, Neil. Oh, I'm sure they did. They must yeah. have done. <laughs> <laughs> to, to use the modem, you, you flip the top of the wooden box open, and there's the phone handset coupler. So you have to dial it up manually with, with a rotary phone that's in this video. It's hung up on the wall. Um, and then you push the handset into the coupler and let the magic happen. That kind of modem was before my time. They were all sleek, all-in-one boxes like the, um, you know, the US Robotics Courier and things like that when I was uh, getting into modems. But I did see these kinds of modems when I watched films like War Games. You know, I'm mm -hmm. sure there was one in that film and other films like that. And I really, I kind of marveled at them and thought. I still, so I, I'd still love to have an acoustic coupler modem for the Atari. Uh, Atari actually manufactured one. I can't remember the model name for their their computers, but they look so cool. And I just harvest a handset from somewhere and just set it on there and have it set up beside my 1200XL. There's something about the aesthetic of the old, you know, put the handset on top of the modem type modem that uh, never gets old to me. I do have an analog phone system here that I could set up internally. Mm. So, you know, maybe if I could get hold of a couple, I could have two computers at other ends of the room that people could kind of <laughs> dial up. What a great idea. Internal phone system <laughs> and chat to each other or something like that. I don't know. You know, they'll just type rude words at each other, but yeah, yeah that's not the point. Why wouldn't be fine. <laughs> <laughs> And um, yeah, watching this video, this old modem being tested out, it got me thinking about that magic feeling of dialing up for the first time and the realization that using a computer no longer had to be this solitary um, activity that you did in your room or, or perhaps you did some couch co-op with your friends but a lot of the time you did it on your own and um, it was nice to be able to reach out and talk to people on message boards and and share and and let's be honest pirate cool stuff <laughs> and that's what we used it for and, and the first time I used a modem myself was I think it was wasn't mine it was on a monochrome 286 laptop in fact i think it was an amber screen um so orange and black and it belonged to my friend and we'd go around to his uncle's house when he was out don't ask me what why for some reason we had no problems with racking up a phone bill on at his house <laughs> for some reason but we did um i think he download games i'd download music mod files to take home and play with in my trackers and and nick the sound samples out of those songs and put them into my own songs and, and, and have lots of fun with it that way um so i just remember the anticipation of dialing up of watching that download tick along uh putting it on a floppy disk and taking it home as quickly as i could to get those sound samples it was a really magical time um how about you john can you remember i, I I'm, I'm sure we've touched on this conversation in old episodes but just tell us in a bit more detail can you remember when you first used a modem did 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 something you know was it was it pre-world wide web that you went online or was it with the web i would say i was part of the first generation of mass consumers to get online you know uh, the first time i ever used a modem was in 1995 uh, my family bought our first windows based pc so we upgraded from an, an ibm xt to a windows 3.1 based computer which is a huge huge leap um 
we skipped by the 286, the 386, the 486. Uh, we had an hourly build America online account. And I still remember just the thrill of connecting. You know, you hear the modem, bing on, bing on, you know, the same sounds that we hear at the beginning of the show. Uh, the welcome and the you've got mail. Now, uh, this is something that I, I didn't realize until fairly recently, but you had an entirely different voice actor for those words in the UK, right, Neil? For AOL in the UK, it was a, it was a, was it a woman or a man? It was um, well, it might have been a man to begin with, but I distinctly remember Joanna Lumley being the voice, so mm. it was a woman. Yeah. Yeah. yeah just a parallel universe over there <laughs> uk neil i can't i can't i can't put my mind over there but uh but anyway yeah that was the first time i used a modem uh and uh it was it was definitely a magical experience nice nice i mean the next experience i had which was with my own computer well no it wasn't with my own computer the next experience this would have been at school and this would have been my first uh worldwide web experience so um in the school computer lab suddenly on our computers we have this thing called Netscape Navi Navigator. I think it was Netscape mm -hmm. that we started off with. Yeah, that was on there. Um, and we found that if we went in there, you could hear the distant sound in the IT manager's broom cupboard of a modem dialing up. So we'd set it up to share <laughs> across the network with everyone. Uh, and eventually web pages would start to appear. And um, there was there was still at that point something very special about the experience in, then. And, um, you know, again, I don't know if it was because you could hear it and you knew it was dialing up and you knew that this was a premium experience that you had to enjoy sparingly. Um, sometimes you would even dial up, download the web page and disconnect. So, you, so it would stop charging you while, while you read the web page. Um, yeah. And it, it just felt kind of wild west and it felt so uncorporate at the time. I think that yeah. was the magical thing about it. Yeah. Um, and it felt like it was something that was so far removed from what my parents generation had easily available to them and experienced that it was just mine and that's a thing that all teenagers want you know they want to mm -hmm. feel like this is our generation's thing right. and parents parents wouldn't understand this how could they possibly understand this <laughs> even though it was their generation that did in fact invent the whole thing so <laughs> <laughs> you just don't get it man you don't get it <laughs> They just had more important things to be doing with their time than looking at right. sea monkeys, you know? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I keep using the word, but there was something quite magical about those early experiences uh, and connecting to an external network and interacting with it and exploring websites and news groups. So the question to, to you, John, is has that magic been lost in the modern day? Um, yeah, I think so. Uh, to me... I, I thought a lot about this, um, you know, when as I was reading this story. I don't believe that there has been anything as magical technology-wise in the history of my life more than the advent of the internet. I mean, just to give a very superficial example, but one that uh, <laughs> it comes from my life, you went from the only person in your whole town that was just really, really into the cure. And you discovered all of a sudden this whole world of people out there on news groups who were also really into the cure. Uh, just that sense of community, the the being able to feel like you're, you're part of something outside your immediate group of friends on whatever topic that you want to wax poetic about, you know, um, being able to find information and discussion on any conceivable topic. Magic is the, it's, it's definitely the right word for it. Um, now, of course, we take all of this stuff for granted. Um, you can find anything you want with two or three clicks. So I would say that the magic has definitely been lost somewhat. 
was the advent of the World Wide Web in particular, um, was that our moon landings? Was that our generation's yeah. moon landings, John? It, 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 it was. I, I really, I mean, so far we don't know what's to come, uh, you know, but uh, up until this point, I can't think of anything that's been more influential uh, on our lives than the advent of the World Wide Web. Sure. Thank you, Sir Tim. Yeah, no, I would, ag- I would agree. And then couple that with that next step towards the turn of the millennium, at least here, the always on always connected broadband and, and right. then the increasing speeds and um but that's just iterative that's just expanding on the thing that was already there so yeah um i am inclined to agree yeah it was that important and the thing that gets me about the modern web now is that i open up a web browser and i automatically go to the same two or three websites reddit twitter youtube uh, maybe i'll check in with the bbc for the news or the weather but there's no motivation to go exploring for me as much anymore and see what cool new things people are using this tech for. I guess you could say something like Reddit has lots of subreddits. So it's effectively lots of websites. It's almost like your old AOL, you know, it's this walled community, mm-hmm. this walled garden full of other communities you can go and explore. It absolutely I don't know. is like that. Yeah. It just doesn't excite me as much. You know, maybe, maybe I'm just old. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But um, you just need to get, you need to get really into crypto, Neil. Crypto is oh. where the. <laughs> Every other email I get at the moment is telling me I need to be into crypto. (laughs) You know, I wonder, Um, we were talking about the teenagers, you know, wanting something that was uniquely theirs. And I have a feeling that crypto, NFTs, all of this stuff that we scoff at. Yeah, yeah, blockchain. This is where all the teenagers, all the geeky teenagers are congregating around those spaces. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. And and we are destined to never truly understand. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's how we feel old. But um, just going back to this video, this 1964 modem, it reminded me of, you know, all the times that I dialed up like that. Um, in those early days, you're using terminal to get to message boards. Uh, but I did it 25 years after 1964. You know, how cool must it have been? How magical must it have been using that thing in 1964? Uh, this is the era of um, the mother of all demos that we you can see on YouTube where the mouse is introduced and uh, Windows and actually using a screen on a computer and, and using a modem to dial up to access resources and things. Just a magical time. And uh, I can't imagine, you must have really felt like you'd made it if you had that thing. You yeah, know, I don't know what your job would have been, but you must have felt like you'd made it if you were bringing that out to send your work back or download data or whatever you were doing with it. I don't know. And the moon landings hadn't even happened at this point. <laughs> it was that long <laughs> ago. So anyway, here's my challenge to you, listeners. I would love you to inspire me and perhaps John as well. Uh, I'm going to have some time off over Christmas and I want to discover new things to do on new websites, uh, anything, anything on the internet. So well, not anything. Let's be careful with what you submit. But most things, <laughs> something new and exciting. So let us know what you've done or discovered on the web recently that might help me to break me out of this cul-de-sac of websites and and reinvigorate my enjoyment of the wondrous technology that, as John says, we are totally taking for granted now. Um, go on to Reddit, find the, find the story in our subreddit uh, about this modem and leave a comment there, and I will look forward to seeing them. Neil, our next story is going to be somewhat contentious, I believe. Uh, Everybody (laughs) has a cutoff for what they consider to be retro. What is your personal cutoff for that? It's um, it's in danger of moving. It's on, on a on a cliff edge at the moment, but at the moment for me, it's still about two thousand and two. It's still that PlayStation Two era. 
Um, it doesn't mean I'm not picking up newer things while they're cheap, you know, because I, I know their time will come, but mm-hmm. it's around about there. Yeah. Okay. Okay. For some people, uh, you know, I've always heard it's a particular generation of consoles. They'll say, uh, if it's past, I don't know that the PlayStation one, or in your case, you know, the PlayStation two, they'll say, okay, well, it's no longer retro, but other people are more year focused. You might say uh, anything 10, 15 or 20 years in the past should be considered retro. It's hard to believe, you know, 10 years ago, Neil was 2011. It's hard to believe anything from 2011 could be considered retro, but at the same time, you know, in 1991, people were looking back at 1981 and saying, boy, that was, that was definitely a retro era. So, but for me, uh, there will always be a break uh, when we transitioned from cartridge-based systems to CD-based ones. I guess this is the period from around 94 to 96. That's where retro ends for me personally. I think CD-based systems, we've entered into a, a new era. And um, it's it's still, I mean, PlayStation 1, I was still kind of retro. But for me, retro gaming is all about taking a cartridge or a disc, plugging it into a machine and, and firing it up. But Neil, you know, we're not getting any younger and systems we still might think of as new are definitely slowly slipping into that retro category. Uh, maybe if not for us, then definitely for the people who grew up with these systems. So just as an example, um, how old do you think the Xbox 360 is? I know it's old because um, uh, I bought one in launch week. When it came out, I paid an absolute fortune for it because I got mm. caught up in all the hype and all the scalpers bought them and they put them on eBay. And I was one of those idiots that went on eBay and spent far <laughs> too much money buying one. Um, and at that part in my life, I'd moved back to my dad's house for a spell. Uh, and in my room, I still had my old 14-inch CRT. So I was using a CRT and that worked great for it. And it was designed to work with flat screens, but also with old CRTs. So... Given the fact that I could play it on a CRT, I think that it does fall into the retro ca- category. And um, <laughs> but what would I guess? Um, it's PlayStation Two, two thousand and two. So w- w- what was it? Yeah, the, when did the Xbox come out? That was about Xbox. I think was 2000, 2002, two, between two thousand one and two thousand three, <laughs> somewhere in right. that. That so the three sixty yeah. must have been sort of five years later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 16, right? Neil. 16 years, 16 years old. old. Yeah. Old enough to drive in America. Uh, the same amount of time. Get this, Neil. The same amount of time has passed between the launch of the 360 and now as the launch, as the time between the launch of Space Invaders in the arcade and the launch of the PlayStation in Japan. Wow. It's yeah. just crazy to think if about. You think, yeah, and you think the progress made in gaming in that period. Right. A, a, right. Whole, a whole other avenue of conversation, maybe not for now, but has the same amount of progress been made yeah. between then so, so, and now? Yeah. So for those of you saying, well, what does the 360 have to do with a retro show? I think that it's fair to say that this next story does fall into the retro camp as much as we might not think at first blush. And I'm talking about the story that's been making its way to headlines of all the major news networks. All the heads of state are talking about it, Neil. It's all over the tabloids. (laughs) A man has collected 2,706 copies of the Burger King promotional game sneaking for the Xbox 360. (laughs) Wow, this man needs help. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Sneak King. I see yes. what you've done with the name there. And um, 
Uh, yeah, I mean, if he was truly into retro, maybe he would have collected, you know, 2,000 copies of Mr. Wimpy on the ZX Spectrum <laughs> if it's all about the burgers for him. Or burger right. time. <laughs> burger time, there you go. Now, sneaking has a pretty interesting history. Um, it was originally supposed to be a downloadable Xbox Live Arcade game. You remember the Xbox Live Arcade, Neil? I do, I remember it well, yeah. Yeah, but because it was released so close to the launch of the 360, it was decided that it should be released on a disc so it could be backwards compatible with the original Xbox. Uh, it was priced at the princely sum of $3.99 uh, if purchased with any combo meal at Burger King, making it one of the true, uh, the few truly budget titles released for any system in America. We didn't really have that scene like you had in the UK, the budget titles, you know, £1.99, etc., that you guys were blessed with in the UK. Cake went all the way back to the, the ZX Spectrum. Um, I read on Wikipedia that the game ended up selling something like 2.6 million units. Uh, an insanely large amount of games were sold. Uh, that means there were about as many copies of Sneak King around as there are Amstrad CPCs. A sobering statistic, Neil. Um, that brings us to the obvious question, why? Why would anyone <laughs> collect so many copies of the same game? What do you think? Well, um, I'm surprised that um, that success, that sales success, didn't trigger more copycat. Um, yeah. You know, you would think everyone would be doing it after selling that many copies. Anyway, um, why why did he do it? I really hope you have the answer to this question, John, because I do genuinely want to know what this guy is up to. <laughs> um, I don't know. Is he trying to push the price up by owning all of them and then dripping them back into the market? Is that the plan? What's, what's his story? Oh, I, I wish I could tell you, Neil. Uh, yeah. I, I, there, there is no answer, but I think that you may be on to something. I, I, I suppose you can make an attempt to exclude you know, to, to corner that extremely valuable sneaking market, maybe. <laughs> but but like I said, this thing sold in the millions. So collecting a few thousand probably isn't going to make much of a difference in raising the price of the game. Uh, I suppose there's always the option of making some kind of Burger King effigy out of the boxes. Uh, I remember, you know, when I went to Super Potato in Japan, they had a throne made of Famicom games. You can make your own uh, royal sneaking uh, throne out of the, the game. But I don't know, Neil, uh, have you ever purposefully collected multiple identical copies of the same game? Um, I own quite a few of the same game, but across different platforms. So, you know, I've got LucasArts games on, on the Amiga and the PC. I've got Bitmap Brothers games, the same game on the Atari and the Amiga. But that, that's not really the same. That's that's going across platforms. So uh, I, I've never really considered myself a completionist in that I have to collect every variant of the same game on the same platform or anything like that, John. So and I'm very, very lucky. I mean, look around me for those watching the video. I'm very lucky with the situation that I'm in, in my, my collecting and my, my retro collecting. Um, uh, so I, I kind of feel guilty if I find myself with mo multiple copies of the same thing, because there are other people who might want to enjoy that thing. So I, I, I get no pleasure whatsoever from hoarding the same copy of the same game for the same platform. Not at all. Um, if I get the same thing, I'll probably check which copy's better, keep the nicer copy for myself and, and sell on the other copy or, or give it away to someone who might want it. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, but then is this guy really depriving that many people? Are there lots of people out there that are absolutely desperate with eBay searches set up to alert them at three in the morning? <laughs> oh my God, there's a copy of Sneak King that's come up for sale. I've got to buy it. Are there, are there people like that, John? <laughs> uh, well, you know, it, it takes all kinds to make the world go round, Neil. Uh, <laughs> I 
I'm sure that there are people out there that are big fans of sneaking, but uh, I don't know. I don't know how long it's going to take him to move these copies. If that is his grand plan. Um, I do have a, a quick story though, to tell you about the one and only time that I've acquired multiple copies of the same game um, mm -hmm. back in the late nineties. Uh, this is 98. I think when electronics boutique, which is the store that became EB games, which mm -hmm. became GameStop uh, when they were cleaning out all of their used eight bit stock, uh, I bought 11 copies <laughs> of super Mario brothers. Get this Neil for nine cents each oh wow <laughs> i'm not kidding new new seal no oh gosh no geez no, i'd be a millionaire okay. think about that <laughs> think about that auction we talked about these were loose copies of super mario oh, brothers that yeah. were just in a bin the the bin i i still remember this clear as day because this was such a unique thing the bin was located outside of the store it was just in the hall of the mall i had to take the games back into the mall or back into the shop to pay for them if i had just taken the games and walked away i don't think they would have cared i think what um, they've but, done there john is the, you've taken something out of the trash gone into the store and they've charged you for it that's what's yeah. happened there <laughs> this bin was located outside of the mall proper it was a big green thing i don't know but uh but yeah i i couldn't resist in nine cents a piece neil i mean think about it that is that is such an incredibly low amazing. price amazing I, I wish i'd kept at least one with the price tag on it but they were part of uh you know the big sell-off that i had of my gaming collection when i moved uh to to south korea to teach over there so i do have a picture of all of the copies though i did i kept them for a long time in a nintendo cartridge case so maybe duncan can put a picture up uh for that uh of that for us but uh would i do it again yes if i ever see if i see anything you know any non-sports video game title up for sale for under a dime i'm going to pick it up every time so uh this might be another good question for our subreddit uh if you collect or if you have somehow collected multiple copies of the same game over the years maybe it's just your favorite game and you want to have a lot of them let us know what it is and post some pictures of it in our subreddit under this story uh i'd love to see uh tons of copies of you know i don't know urban champion or uh you know uh professional bmx simulator for the zx spectrum that would be a good one to collect multiple copies of uh so let us know and uh, i can't wait to hear what's lurking in your closet so, Neil, last week's community question of the week was which ZX Spectrum artist was your favorite? Um, of course, we were talking about the passing of Bernie Drummond, and uh, we put the question to our that, uh, This Week in Retro subreddit community, and we got one response, Neil. <laughs> one oh, response. No. <laughs> it's our friend paul aka hermsky submitter of our first story this week he says i would say oliver frey although he wasn't directly involved with specky graphics he's well known for his artwork for many iconic crash magazine covers and that's something that we didn't really touch on when we talked about spectrum artists but you know those uh the the artists that were responsible for the ancillary you know artwork the the box art the magazine covers those guys were as much a part of the scene as the programmers and the the artists within the games themselves wouldn't you say I would. And um, I have been the victim of Oliver Frey recently because I'm trying oh. to buy magazines to bulk out the, the library area of the cave mm -hmm. here. And of course, I want copies of Crash Magazine. But that Oliver Frey artwork makes those magazines so collectible and so desirable because every single issue has a, just a, a stunning work of art on the front of it. Um, 
which just makes you want to pick it up and, and read it. And it always did back in the day and it still does now. So those magazines cost an absolute fortune to get hold of and everybody <laughs> wants them. So, um, yeah, I think that's testament to the quality of his work. Yeah, absolutely. So this week's community question of the week is uh, holiday related. It's festive, Neil, because next week is going to be we're going to record our special uh, Christmas episode of This Week in Retro, and we want to include uh, some of your stories. So uh, please post a response on our subreddit to the question, what is your all-time favorite Christmas gaming memory? I'm sure everybody has a uh, has a wintertime, even if you don't celebrate Christmas. It's surely you've acquired some game. You have some memory of this time of the year uh, that has stuck with you over the years. So please share that with us on our subreddit, and we will read. I don't know, Neil. Maybe we'll break the rules next week. We'll spend a little bit more time going through and reading uh, a bunch of these uh, a bunch of these responses. Don't you think that's a good idea? I think let's take a break from the norm. Let's just have a nice relaxed Christmas episode next week where we can share our own Christmas memories and also read out yours. And if you're able to as well in the subreddit, maybe upload some pictures of those things. Maybe you've got some old pictures of Christmas memories that we can talk oh, yeah. about and, and things like that. Let's get really Christmassy. I've got my Christmas jumper on this week. John, I hope you're going to have yours on next I week. I will have it on with bells on, maybe even right. literally. <laughs> Yeah, we'll have a nice relaxed Christmas special, uh, but we do need your your messages. So hopefully we'll get more than the one we got for the, the ZX Spectrum <laughs> question this week. And we'll have lots to talk about and, um, and, and hang out with you next week for, for Christmas. Let's do that. Today's episode of This Week in Retro comes thanks to our partners at Anchor FM. Whether you're new to the game or you have an existing successful podcast, Anchor FM offer a home where you can extend your audience and find new sponsorship opportunities to make it the most successful podcast it can be. That's right, Neil. We love Anchor, and that's why we use them to host This Week in Retro. You should check them out at anchor.fm for more info. This Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RMC and John Shawler. It was produced by me, Duncan Stiles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favorite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash This Week in Retro to suggest and vote on stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you'd like to support the show, please check out the links to our Patreon and Coffee pages in the show notes or in the YouTube description. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.